Good morning. Ken Weinstein, President and CEO of Hudson Institute. On behalf of Hudson Institute uh, Board Chair Sarah Stern and the other Hudson trustees uh, present, as well as my Hudson Institute uh, colleagues, especially uh, Senior Fellow Nina Shea, who directs our Center for Religious Freedom, I'd like to welcome everyone to today's uh, conference, which is sponsored by the Center for Religious Freedom, the Islamic State's Religious Cleansing and the Need for a Strategic Response. The focus today is on political or policy and strategies to deal with one of the great humanitarian crises of our time, the tragic fate of the 2,000-year-old uh, Chaldean Christian community in Iraq and surrounding areas, as well as the fate of other religious minorities, uh, ancient religions such as the Yazidis, who are suffering, suffering terribly, as we all know, under the caliphate of the Islamic State. We have all seen the horrific images of the, the beheadings of uh, men, women, and children going without food and water in encampments, lack of educational opportunities for children, and this, these historic communities now really facing uh, their potential end. To deal with this, this immense crisis, my colleague Nina Shea has organized an absolutely extraordinary program. We are deeply honored to have with us shortly is Eminence Cardinal Dolan, who mentioned the conference uh, at uh, his remarks during uh, Mass this morning. And I, we know that he's looking forward to being here. We're fortunate to have His Excellency Bishop Mansour and a number of other very distinguished uh, individuals who have uh, played a crucial role in bringing the plight of these communities to public attention. Hudson Institute is a Washington-based public policy organization that uh, promotes strong and engaged U.S. international leadership in partnership with our allies. Our belief is very simple. Strong and engaged U.S. international leadership is a prerequisite for global security, prosperity, and the defense of human rights. Central to the defense of human rights is religious freedom, and we are proud at Hudson to be the home of the premier policy center focused on promoting religious freedom around the globe, and that is uh, the Center for Religious Freedom, which Nina Shea runs. Nina Shea really needs no introduction. She has been an eminent human rights lawyer for more than three decades. Uh, she is known both in Washington and around the globe for her scholarship and advocacy on behalf of the persecuted, whether they be the Catholic Church in uh, Latin America under uh, in the 1980s uh, to uh, Christians and Muslims uh, and Jewish communities uh, persecuted around the globe. Nina was um, the first really to do an in-depth study of the horrific official textbooks in Saudi Arabia and the official anti-Semitism and uh, anti-Christian uh, uh, teachings that were going around to uh, not just children in uh, Saudi Arabia, but to uh, madrasas around the world. She is really the, the first in Washington to highlight the immense threat posed by the Boko Haram and she early on warned in the Bush administration high figures, including, frankly, the President of the United States himself, of the immense threat that uh, U.S. policy, even at that point, was posing to the, uh, to the Nineveh Christians, to this uh, historic community. Nina's uh, books on uh, Islamic blasphemy, that was her book on Islamic blasphemy was published, uh, called Silence, was published by Oxford University Press, and 
widely read uh, throughout the globe. Her book, Persecuted, the Global Assault uh, on Christians, is, was, was uh, Marco Rubio's recommended book uh, in 2013 in the Wall Street Journal's, uh, in his entry in the Wall Street Journal's uh, Christmas reading list. Uh, we're very fortunate to have Nina with us at Hudson. She is constantly briefing people on Capitol Hill. She is constantly briefing people from governments around the world, and she even met uh, last year with the Pope to discuss the very issue we're talking about today. So without any further ado, it's my honor and pleasure to turn it to Nina. Thanks, Ken. Thank you all for coming, and I want to thank uh, Sarah Stern, um, our chair of our board at Hudson, and um, for all the team, for all the trustees and the team at Hudson that has really brought this together. Um, and also our sponsors. So um, this conference um, will discuss a serious topic. It's an epic human rights crisis on the ongoing religious cleansing of the Christians and the Yazidis and the other defenseless small communities by jihadists in Iraq and Syria. And we are raising their plight and exploring together on how we in the United States can help them even beyond humanitarian aid in ways that our political leaders have not adequately and squarely addressed. Last, for example, last weekend, um, U.S., Kurdish, and Iraqi uh, civilian and military leaders met in Erbil to plan the Mosul offensive. No Christian voice was at the table. No Yazidi voice was at the table either. And it is fitting, I think, that we happen to be taking up this topic on the very day Armenian Americans are commemorating 100 years since the Armenian genocide at the National Cathedral today in Washington. Next month marks the one year mark since ISIS stormed Mosul and began its convert or die policy that had already begun several months before in Raqqa, Syria. This continues today, despite the protest of prominent Muslim voices, such as Ayatollah Sistani and the Jordanian royal family. Um, by last summer's end, hundreds of thousands of Christians and Yazidis had been driven out of Iraq. They are now IDPs in Kurdistan or refugees in the neighboring countries. And they eschew the UN camps and are wholly dependent on international aid. They've been stripped of all their possessions, and even more than that, they've been stripped of their future. Um, Sister Maria Hanna, the prioress of the Dominican nuns in um, Iraq, and we have a representative uh, today with us from the Dominican order from the United States. Um, she sent an email, a searing email last November. Quote, what hurts the most is the fact there is no positive scenario or any promising sign for a better future. Every day we ask, until when, and what is next? So today we will begin to ask, will the Iraqi Churches of the Apostles, will the Syrian Church of the Pentecost um, be completely eradicated? These, just a few years ago, were two of the four of the most robust church communities in the Middle East, after the Copts and the Church in Lebanon. Um, we won't settle on answers today, um, and we won't all agree, but we begin, we must begin today this broader discussion 
of whether these minorities. And I must add that the Jewish community has already been eradicated from Iraq and Syria, and the Mandean community has been virtually eradicated from Iraq over this last uh, period. Um, we will not dwell on which administration is most at fault. We'll try to be forward-looking and trying to come up with um, policy solutions. Um, the conference will start with a panel des uh, describing the human rights crisis, setting the scene. We will then hear the church perspective on um, policies and giving insights from Cardinal Dolan and um, Bishop um, uh, Mansour. Uh, we will then move to over lunch with Hudson's own Walter Russell Mead, who's an expert in grand strategy. And we will conclude with a panel of experts uh, who will raise and discuss specific policy considerations. Um, and um, I'm very excited about this conference. All the speakers are friends of mine and colleagues of mine that I've been working with for years. So I am very um, enthusiastic about sharing them with all of you. I want to begin by welcoming Reverend Benedict Keeley, um, who will introduce our first panel. Father Ben is a Catholic pastor of Blessed Sacrament Parish in uh, Stowe, Vermont. Um, and from his perch in the Green Mountains, he was seized by the plight of the Nineveh Church and started a web company to raise awareness and funds for them. And he does this by selling lapel pins and other items with the Arabic letter N for Nazarene. Um, the letter, of course, was that that was stamped on Christian homes in Mosul by ISIS last June before they were deported. Um, he has raised uh, thousands of dollars this way, so join me in welcoming um, Father Keeley. Thank you, Nina. I appreciate it. Um, I'm a walking commercial, by the way, for, uh, for these items. If I could wear the car magnet, I would be wearing it at this moment. But uh, you can all take any of these goodies. My, my whole point is prayer, solidarity, and charity. By wearing an item or having it in your car or your lapel pin or your zipper pull or cufflinks even we have, uh, you are remembering to pray for our brethren. Also, you are showing solidarity with our brethren uh, it's a conversation starter. People ask why, what does it mean? You begin to get a conversation going. And last but not least, it's charity because we're giving away all the funds to help uh, our brothers and sisters in need. So that's my little uh, plug for my group. And but as you can tell, I'm English, even though I'm in uh, New England. I'm from Old England. On the panel, we have, uh, we have two Armenians, an Italian and an Englishman. There's almost a joke there, but we'll save that for later. But... Uh, um, it's my pleasure to introduce, very briefly, we're very tight on time. Uh, we may or may not have questions, but it's my pleasure to introduce our three speakers. Our first speaker is Professor Mark Movesian. I'm struggling with the Armenian, Movesian, who is the uh, Frederick Whitney Professor of Contract Law and the Director of the Center for Law and Religion at St. John's University. And he's going to address the issue of the Armenian genocide, its legacy, and its uh, very strong links, of course, with today. Our second speaker is Sarkis Bogjalian, who's the executive director of Aid to the Church in Need in the USA. He's worked around the world on behalf of Christian communities, particularly in Eastern Europe and Latin America. Aid to the Church in Need is a pontifical uh, agency founded in 1947, helping 
especially, particularly the persecuted and suffering Christians in 140 countries. And our last speaker will be Michael La Civita, or La Civita in this country, La Civita, Communications Director of the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. He's a veteran in communications. Uh, the Catholic Near East Welfare Association is a papal agency uh, for humanitarian and pastoral support, serving, uh, focusing particularly on the Eastern Catholic churches. And so each speaker will speak, and then if we have time before the cardinal arrives, we will have some questions. So I ask uh, Mark, please, to come forward. Uh, thank you, Father, and thank you also to the Hudson Institute, and especially Nina, for inviting me to participate in today's event. Our conference today focuses on the present and the future for Mideast Christians. But you can't understand the present or anticipate the future without some knowledge of the past. The violence against Mideast Christians today is not historically unprecedented. We're witnessing one of the periodic eruptions of violence Mideast Christians have endured down the centuries, when at moments of crisis, certain elements within Islam have sought to return to a, quote, pure version of their faith. In classical Islam, Christians are tolerated as long as they accept the terms of the Dhimma, the notional contract that governs relations between the Muslim community, or Ummah, and so-called people of the book. That's what ISIS seeks to do today in the parts of Iraq and Syria it controls, to return Christians to the status of dhimmis, who, in exchange for permission to remain in their homes, agree to pay the jizya and accept a state of legal and social subordination. Christians who reject the deal must leave or face the consequences. This explains why perhaps 100,000 Iraqi Christians fled their home last summer, fled their homes last summer, and are now refugees. As I say, this is not an unprecedented phenomenon. In fact, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the last great persecution of Christians in the Middle East before current events, the genocide against Armenians and other Christians at the end of the Ottoman Empire. Historians estimate that perhaps one and a half million Armenian Christians, as well as hundreds of thousands of Syriac or Assyrian Christians and Greek Christians died in this genocide, which the Ottoman government carried out during the First World War and immediately thereafter. Last month, Pope Francis celebrated mass in St. Peter's to commemorate the genocide. And in Armenia, the Armenian Apostolic Church formally declared as saints those victims who died as martyrs for their Christian faith. This weekend, as Nina mentioned, in Washington, the Armenian-American community will hold its own national commemoration, including a liturgy at the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Nina asked me to speak about the 20th century genocide and its relationship to events today. There are many echoes, many parallels. When I see photographs of the refugees of 2015, expelled from their homes with nothing but the clothes on their backs, I can't help but be reminded of the photographs of the refugees of 1915. Except for the fact that the older photographs have faded with time, they look almost the same. Indeed, today's refugees are sometimes the descendants of the refugees of 1915. They live, or lived, in villages and cities, like Kobani in Syria, about which we heard so much last fall, which were founded by Christians who survived the death marches and killing fields of 100 years ago. It's bitter to observe that as we commemorate the Christian martyrs of the last century, new martyrs are being created right now. As Pope Francis said at the commemorative mass in Rome last month, 
just as a century ago, today too we hear the muffled and forgotten cry of so many of our defenseless brothers and sisters who on account of their faith in Christ or their ethnic origin are publicly and ruthlessly put to death, decapitated, crucified, burned alive, or forced to leave their homeland. Sometimes the ironies leap out. In Derzor in Syria, where hundreds of thousands of Armenian Christians died 100 years ago, survivors built a church in their memory. Every year, tens of thousands visited this church to honor and pray for the martyrs of 1915. Last September, ISIS militants wired the church with explosives and reduced it to rubble. In my brief remarks this morning, I'm going to give a quick history of the Armenian genocide, and in particular, its religious roots. And then I'll reflect on the legacy of the genocide today. Because I'll be addressing emotional subjects, a couple of clarifications may be necessary from the start. First, I'm not suggesting that the persecution of Christians by ISIS today or the persecution by Christians in the Ottoman Empire 100 years ago represents the only stream in Islam, its, quote, true or authentic form. Islam, like other world religions, has different forms. Many Muslims are appalled at what's happening to Christians today. Most Muslims, even very traditional Muslims, reject ISIS. I claim only that religion was an important factor in the persecution of Mideast Christians at the time of the Armenian Genocide and that it's an important factor in the persecution of Mideast Christians today. Second, today's Turks are not to blame for what their ancestors did 100 years ago. God willing, Turks and Armenians will one day be able to reconcile in a way that honors justice. Acknowledging the truth about what happened to Armenians and other Christians at the end of the Ottoman period would be a good start. The essential facts about the genocide are well known. Armenians are an ancient people who have inhabited the Armenian highlands, that's the area around Mount Ararat in what is today eastern Turkey, for thousands of years. They were Christianized early by the apostles Thaddeus and Bartholomew. Indeed, Armenia was the first nation to accept Christianity as its state religion in the year 301, several years before Rome. After the Ottoman conquest of Byzantium in the 15th century, Armenians became one of the empire's millets, or nations, ethno-religious groups organized along confessional lines. They shared the fate of other Christian groups in the empire. Armenians were tolerated and given a degree of communal autonomy. Many integrated into Ottoman society. Individual Armenians could do quite well. Some served in the Ottoman government. But as a rule, Armenians were always subject to the Dima, the notional contract I mentioned earlier, which required them as Christians to accept legal or social subordination. Whatever they had, they had as a matter of sufferance, never as a matter of right. Moreover, Armenians were subject to collective punishment if they appeared to question Muslim superiority or cooperate too closely with outside Christians. It was a precarious existence. This was the situation for centuries. Then, in the 19th century, things began to change. At first, they seemed to change for the better. In a series of religious and political reforms known as the Tanzimat, or reorganization, the Ottomans formally granted equal status for the first time to Christians and Muslims. Historians debate why the Ottomans did so. European pressure was a major factor. Some Christians, especially intellectuals in the cities, were pleased. Equality for Christians caused a backlash among Muslims, though. It didn't help that the Armenians were identified with, uh, with outsiders, 
those Europeans who were pressuring the Ottomans to uh, give Christians equal rights. Oppression continued, particularly in the countryside. Armenians began to resist. In response, Sultan Abdul Hamid, who had adopted pan-Islamism as a centerpiece of his reign, ordered massacres of Christians in the 1890s, in which perhaps 200,000 Armenians died. Assyrian Christians were caught up in the violence as well. Perhaps 25,000 of them died. After the massacres of the 1890s, it was clear that the Ottoman state was not prepared to grant real equality to Armenians and other Christians, and that European Christians, for all their rhetoric, were not prepared to do very much. The large majority of Armenians resigned themselves to the status quo. A small number, though, began to organize paramilitary groups. The militants, who were always a tiny minority among Armenians, occasioned increasingly brutal repression by the government, which in turn provoked more resistance. In Ronald Sunni's words, a cycle of violence that produced more and more victims. When World War I broke out, the young Turk government worried that these groups would side with Christian Russians and fight for an independent state. So they decided to solve the Armenian question once and for all by deporting the Armenian population from Anatolia to Syria through the Syrian desert. That was the official explanation. Of course, deporting people through a desert without adequate supplies or protection is a program calculated to lead to mass death. Moreover, as historians such as Eugene Rogan have explained, the young Turk government in fact gave private orders to exterminate the Armenians en route, to segregate and murder the men, and to march the women and children through conditions that would ensure their elimination as well. And that is more or less what happened. The columns of Armenians were set on by soldiers, local police, gangs, and Kurdish and Circassian irregulars who robbed them and killed them in the most horrible of conditions. The murders continued once the Armenians reached Syria, in the city of Derzur, which I mentioned earlier. In all, as I said, historians estimate that perhaps 1.5 million Armenian Christians died. Now, notwithstanding some controversy occasioned by the refusal of the present-day Turkish government to concede there was a genocide, a clear consensus exists among historians about what happened to Armenian Christians in eastern Turkey in 1915. Moreover, notwithstanding the fact that the genocide had many factors, economic, political, military, religion played an enormous role. It's easy to see how negative attitudes towards Christians, incorporated for centuries in the Dima rules and exacerbated by the events of the 19th century, figured in the genocide of Armenians in 1915. It's well known, for example, that Armenians and other Christians who converted to Islam were spared. In fact, their descendants live in Turkey today. And survivors reported that Turkish authorities told them the Armenians were being punished as part of the jihad for being traitorous infidels, the Turkish word is javers, who had forfeited the protection of the Dima. And here I would recommend Peter Balakian's recent translation of the memoirs of his great uncle, Father Grigoris Balakian, who was an Armenian priest who survived the genocide. Besides, the massacres were not limited to Armenians. Other communities in Anatolia were also swept up in the anti-Christian violence. Syriac Christians, for example, suffered greatly in Diyarbakir and Van, slaughtered by local Kurdish tribes in what the Assyrian community today calls Chateau de Sefo, the Year of the Sword. Unlike Armenians, the Assyrians posed no conceivable territorial threat. Their destruction seems to have been motivated entirely by religion 
by a desire to cleanse Turkey of its Christian inhabitants and dispossess them of their land and property. Hundreds of thousands of Assyrians died. And the Ottoman government also carried out a campaign of ethnic and religious cleansing against Christian Greeks, particularly in the region of Pontus on the Black Sea. Hundreds of thousands of Greeks died. The lesson of the Armenian Genocide, then, is that religiously motivated violence against Mideast Christians is sadly not a new or aberrant phenomenon. And that is why the Armenian Genocide is important for us to consider at this conference today. And I'll, I'll close with this. As I said at the beginning of my remarks, one can't appreciate the present or anticipate the future without remembering the events of the past. So there's a very simple reason for us to recall the events of 100 years ago. Remembering the Armenian Genocide, the almost unimaginable suffering Mideast Christians faced in the last century, may be a way to mobilize the world to do something to help Mideast Christians who face almost unimaginable suffering now, before it becomes too late. Thank you. Now I'd like to introduce uh, Sarkis Bogjalian, who's the Executive Director of Aid to the Church in Need USA. Good morning. I would like to start with this quote from Dabik. It is the online publication of ISIS addressing the Christian world. It says, we will raid you. We will conquer your Rome, break your crosses, and enslave your woman by the permission of Allah. This quote defines the ambition of ISIS. Abu Bakr Naji, one of the ISIS intellectual architects, published a book online outlining its strategy. He writes, Jihad is nothing but violence, crudeness, terrorism, frightening people, and massacring. This is the blueprint of ISIS to execute its grand plan. This translates into religious and territorial cleansing of Christians and other minorities in the Middle East. There is no doubt that the Middle East has been set on fire. While the international community is watching, Christians and other religious minorities suffer human rights violations and religious persecutions of the worst kind. The international community has strongly condemned these crimes against humanity, but there has been no effective action to put a stop to the violation of the fundamental human right of religious freedom and to ensure that Christians and other minorities are given protection and safe haven. During a Security Council briefing in March, UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said the so-called Islamic State has been systematically killing ethnic and religious minorities and those who disagree with its warped interpretation of Islam. He added that in Iraq, evidence strongly suggests that Daesh has perpetrated genocide and committed crimes against humanity, and that minorities have been the victims of that violence with the utmost brutality. The question, are we witnessing a Christian genocide? Let me refer to the Article 2 of the UN Convention. It defines genocide as any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such killing members, causing serious bodily or mental harm. 
ISIS' ruthless pursuit of religious and uh, territorial cleansing clearly fits the definition of genocide. The acts of ISIS show clear intent, violent and brutal executions targeting Christians and Yazidis who represent distinct national, ethnical, racial, and religious groups. The intent of ISIS goes beyond destruction. It aims to erase the past, the present, and the future of the Christians and Yazidis from the Middle East. Of course, the international community faces a problem in terms of prosecuting a genocide case against ISIS. ISIS is not a country and does not abide by any international law. The international community has not yet figured out how to deal with ISIS. But when the time comes, should ISIS be prosecuted by an international court? The question creates a bigger problem for the international community because it will require the investigation of certain countries that can be considered as complicit to genocide because they allow passage of fighters, weapons, provide other forms of support of ISIS, including funding. It is also important to keep in mind that ISIS is deploying a kind of war that targets the collective psyche, the imagination and the emotion of the human beings, which also fits the parameters of genocide. This technique goes beyond the brutal physical force. It creates fear. It wages a war fueled by fear. A word on the foundation of the ISIS ideology, which is its blind adherence to an extreme form of Salafism. Salafists view themselves as the only true Muslims. The ISIS interpretation of the school of thought includes cleansing Islam of Shiism and cleansing territory from infidels. It is absolutely uncompromising. Allow me to paint a picture of the Christian world. Before 2003, in Iraq, the Christian presence was estimated over a million. Today, that number is around 300,000. With ISIS taking over northern Iraq, Christians and Yazidis, two ancient communities face extinction. Today, there are no Christians left in ISIS-held territories. When ISIS took Mosul in June 2014 and soon after conquered the Nineveh Plain, more than 120,000 Christians were forced to flee. Both human and institutional losses are immense. Over 2,000 Christians have been reported killed in Iraq in the wake of the fall of Mosul. Such was the fate of an Assyrian man who was beaten to death for refusing to convert. In Mosul, all Christian churches, approximately 45, have been destroyed, repurposed, or converted to mosques, including the Church of the Virgin of Fatima in Faisalia and the Church of Our Lady in Mosul. In Sinjar, located in the Nineveh province, all Assyrian Christians, and especially the Yazidi community, suffered immensely while the world watched the question, incapable or unwilling to help. 500 Yazidis were massacred. Many died of starvation and dehydration. During a UN Security Council briefing, March 27, Iraqi Yazidi Congresswoman Vian Dahil, with with tears in her eyes, told the world, we are being slaughtered, our girls are being sold, our children are being taken. 
The world has yet to understand and confront the genocidal behavior of ISIS. While ISIS is setting the stage of its message of death that awaits all infidels. The sense of insecurity and fear of ISIS has already had a serious impact on the Christian minorities in Syria as well. They too face complete annihilation, with ISIS now threatening further expansions. Assyrian Christians fled their ancestral land from 35 villages in north Syria. Of its 250,000 Christians in 2012, only 100,000 are said to be left in Aleppo. 300 Assyrians have been kidnapped in Syria, and their fate is unknown. Among the kidnapped are the two bishops, Archbishop Mar Gregorius Yohanna Ibrahim of the Syriac Orthodox Church and Bishop Bulos of the Greek Orthodox Church. Reports also confirm the killing of 45 Syriac Orthodox Christians murdered in Sadat, and in Malula, three young men were executed because they refused to renounce their fate. Near Aleppo, Father Mahfoud, a Greek Orthodox priest, and Father Michel Khayal, an Armenian Catholic priest, were killed because of their faith. Over 150 churches, pastoral centers, and monasteries have been damaged or destroyed in Syria, such as the Church of St. George in Qaber Shamaya, which was looted and then set on fire. Most recently, the Armenian Apostolic Church of the 40 Martyrs in Aleppo was destroyed in apparent response to the 100th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide. Before the Syrian conflict, which started 2011, Syria's total population was approximately 22 million. Christians represented 10%. In January 2015, reports show 3.3 million registered refugees. This number does not reflect Christian reality. Most Christians refuse to join refugee camps or to register with aid agencies. They fear retaliations and kidnapping. With 7.6 million internally displaced people, including hundreds of thousands of Christians, the humanitarian landscape in Syria has reached an explosive state, and Michael will be elaborating on that. However, Christians in Syria are no longer able to enjoy peace, respect, and safety in their homeland. Egypt has not been immune to religious targeting in the summer of 2013, 38 cops were killed, 97 churches, monasteries, schools, and church facilities have been destroyed or damaged. The Church of Good Shepherd in Asyut and the Convent of the Sisters of St. Mary in Cairo are just two examples of religious buildings which were burned down. Many young girls, 15 years old, are still being kidnapped, forced to convert, and forced to be married. When we have, we have seen the barbaric images of Coptic Christians beheaded in Libya, the martyrdom of 21 Egyptians, men decapitated in Libya has elevated the gruesomeness of ISIS to a new level of atrocity, and it was made worse by the execution of 30 Ethiopian Christians. So the Arab Spring, with its promise of change, has marked the beginning of a religious nightmare of Christian minorities and other minorities as well. So the question, are Christians in the Middle East facing extinction? The recent escalation of violence targeting Christians in the Middle East forces us to ask this question. Could we be witnessing the final chapter of Christianity's existence in the very place of its own birth? With a Christian presence that predates the arrival of Islam, the Middle East is the birthplace and heartland of Christianity. In this land sanctified by the blood of the first martyrs and saved, a tragedy of epic proportions is unfolding before our eyes. 
What is it at stake? The interrupted and devastated lives of Christian refugees who, take the, who lack the means to feed their families and provide their children with the opportunity to continue their education. Churches that have seen their infrastructure dismantled, ancient manuscripts destroyed, and a rich patrimony jeopardized, not to mention the spiritual and moral presence of a peaceful community threatened. How do Christians in the Middle East see the world around them? How do they talk about this crisis? For the Christians in the Middle East, fear and sense of abandonment is among the greatest crosses they have to bear. I quote, we feel forgotten and isolated. We sometimes wonder if they kill us all, what would be the reaction of Christians in the West? Would they do something then? Such was the prophetic plea by the Chaldean patriarch Wissakho, even before the expansion of ISIS. I would like to conclude by pointing out that religious freedom is a fundamental human right. And today, thousands are being persecuted, deprived of their fundamental freedom, discriminated against, and killed simply because they are Christian believers. ISIS is executing its plan of action from a perfect playbook. We have only to look back to the recent history to see Hitler's strategies repeating. Hitler, who in his speech of August 22, 1939, wrote, our strength consists, two interesting words, consists in our speed and in our brutality. Genghis Khan led millions of women and children to slaughter with premeditation and happy heart. History sees in him solely the founder of a state. It is a matter of indifference to me what a weak Western European civilization will say about me. I have issued the command, he continues, to send to death mercilessly and without compassion men, women, and children. And he continues, who after all, really, who after all, speaks today of the annihilation of the Armenians? The ISIS blueprint wages an uncompromising war for religious and territorial cleansing of Christians and other minorities in the Middle East. And the recent events in Texas reminds us that ISIS is not just a regional threat. The world must respond. We must not allow the annihilation of Christianity in the Middle East. Thank you. Thank you, Saki. So now I ask Michael Lachevita to uh, speak on behalf of the Catholic Near East Welfare Association. <clears throat> Thank you, Father. Thank you, Nina. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> Long before there was ISIS, civil war in Syria, an Arab Spring, Al-Qaeda, the U.S. invasions of Iraq, civil war in Lebanon, and the Israeli-Arab conflict, Middle East Christians were on the move. Whether hiding from persecution by Roman emperors, Persian forces, Byzantine bishops, Arab invaders, or Ottoman henchmen, the region's Christians demonstrated agility, tenacity, and the will to survive. As they moved from place to place, leaving behind their ancient centers of Antioch or Edessa, Middle East Christians preserved their identities, their cultures, their languages, their rights, and their unique approaches to the one Christian faith. They, re they reestablished their monasteries, their churches, and their schools 
from Beirut to Baghdad, prospering in the modern era, even with the rise of ideological fanaticism and its destructive twin, intolerance. But the sixth day of August 2014 will be forever seared into the psyches of all Middle East Christians, for on that day, maniacal extremists upended the lives of more than 100,000 Iraqis, forcing them to flee their homes, leaving every, everything behind in a matter of minutes. The human cost of the displacement of the Middle East's Christians is tremendous, although they may account for only 5% of the region's total population, Christians dominate the region's middle classes, exercising prominence in the tourism industry, commercial and skilled labor sectors, and the civil service. And as they flee the extremists, rapidly now taking hold in the regions, moderates from other communities are sure to follow, leaving behind those who cannot leave and those who stand to gain by fanning the flames of hate. Safwan and his wife, Dahlia, had everything. Good jobs, two sons, and an active social life centered on the family and their parish community in the city of Mosul. Dahlia was expecting her third child, and preparations were being made to welcome the baby. Then ISIS swept in, took ISIS as their capital, and the family fled to Katakosh, about an hour away. Their precarious refuge, however, soon collapsed as ISIS swept into the nation's or to the region's Christian heartland, the Nineveh Plain. We had only 30 minutes to flee to Katakosh, Safran recalled. We took what we could in our car and left. Like all 100,000 other Christians, we used the same dusty road. We were all afraid, stuck in traffic, the crying, the screaming, the dust and heat. It was a nightmare. Meanwhile, ISIS was gaining ground as Iraqi Kurdish forces retreated to defend their capital, Erbil. The bullets flew. The scariest thing was that we did not know who was shooting, where those bullets were coming from, said Ibta Hajrifo, who fled the same night with her family. We didn't have a clear idea of our destination. We knew we had to head toward Kurdistan. That was the only place. When we arrived in Erbil, recalled Safwan, it was total chaos. Like so many, we slept outside for nights. We knew then that our lives here were over. Perhaps that summer day may be the moment when the slow erosion of Middle East Christianity gave way to a flood as Christians resigned themselves to defeat marhalas enough and move on forever. Paradoxically, the flight of Christians from the region is arduous. While hundreds of thousands have been displaced from their homes in Iraq and Syria, most exist in a sort of limbo, hunkering down with friends and family in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, the Valley of Christians in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraqi Kurdistan. Some 12,000 Syrian Armenian Christians have found refuge in Armenia, but few others have acquired the coveted visas necessary to emigrate to the West, where most Middle East Christians now live. Just a few months into their exile, the Rifo family was not yet able to accept the possibility of emigration. We all agree that this is something we don't want to think of, said the matriarch of the family, Ibtihaj. We will go back to our houses even if the house is destroyed. Returning home is the only possibility we are thinking of, and we don't want to think of any other. Her husband, Nabil, had other thoughts. 
Even if we go back to our, to our houses, we have lost our sense of security, he said, adding that some of his non-Christian neighbors and colleagues were responsible for the looting of abandoned Christian houses. Others joined ISIS. Will we ever return to normal, he said. However one defines it, normality is as precious a commodity to the Christians of the Middle East as is a visa to the West and water, which is always in short supply. The moment we crossed the checkpoint into Iraqi Kurdistan, said Ibtahaj, I didn't know if I should cry or if I should laugh. The first thing I said to my family was, we have become displaced. Now we will be receiving food and water and aid from people. We will have to queue for the shower and the bathroom. Not all of those who have fled the advance of ISIS have grasped the consequences of exile as quickly as she. Traumatized by an interruption so abrupt, so violent, and so final, most remain stunned as if trapped in a nightmare. I don't believe what has happened, said Fadi Amati. I cry when I remember Karakosh, the churches, communion, having parties, and we would sit with our neighbors and wait, wait for the holidays. I am sitting here, but my mind is in Karakosh. Until recently, the home for this family of six was a small space padded with foam mattresses and separated from other living spaces by plastic sheets and a dank basement of an unfinished building in Erbil. A number of families shared one bathroom, and they took turns cleaning that, but really the building's unfinished sewage system, uh, uh, system excuse me, made the process futile. The smell of human refuse had permeated the air. My children get sick, I take them to the doctor, then they get well, and then they get sick again. She said of the endless cycle of poor health that has stricken her family since last August. In fact, she has herself respiratory problems, and, is, and actually every time she talks, it's constantly interrupted with crying and coughing. We know nothing, she said, we are just waiting for God's mercy. As, family, as, as families such as the Matis wait the traumatic scars of displacement and loss send them to hospitals, clinics, or worse, the grave. In the Jordanian capital of Amman, where some 8,000 Iraqi Christians have found refuge since last August, refugees seek care from the oldest health care facility in the kingdom, the Italian hospital. Daily, as many as 130 Iraqi Christians seek medical assistance, joining hundreds of others who are mostly poor Jordanians, Syrians, Sudanese, and Somalians. According to the facility's director, those Iraqi Christians who fled ISIS come to the Italian hospital for treatment of hypertension and diabetes. Others seek treatment for their heart ailments and strokes, which are usually related to the enormous stress from the loss of homes, livelihoods, and more. We listen to them. There is struggle, loss, and disappointment. It's no wonder the refugees are depressed, confided the hospital's administrator, Sister Elizabeth of the Dominican Sisters of the Presentation of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Their psychological condition directly affects their physical well-being. Sister Najim Mahabash of the Dominican Sisters of St. Catherine of Siena has noted that many displaced Iraqi Christians are struggling with depression, feeling that their liberty, their dignity, have been taken away from them. Those who fled, she said, had homes and enjoyed financial independence, but now they find it hard to buy bread, food, and basic necessities. Feeding their families has forced some women 
and to the unthinkable, prostitution. A few years ago, Suwad, a Melkite Greek Catholic, fled her home in Aleppo for Lebanon. She feared for the safety of her 12-year-old daughter. Extremists were on the move, kidnapping young girls and selling them into slavery. Once in Lebanon, Suad's husband could only find occasional work as a day laborer. Unable to meet the $400 a month needed for rent and utilities and with nothing to eat, he forced his young wife into prostitution. This stark reality is not uncommon in a country where, in in the words of one friend, desperation is rampant and choices are few. Fortunately for Suad and her family, a Franciscan missionary of Mary, Sister Warda da Kairos, intervened, rescuing Suad and her family from further disgrace, if not worse. But the needs of the, excuse me, but when Sister Warda came, revealed Suad, I felt like the doors of heaven had opened to me. But the needs of the refugees have a who have poured into Lebanon and make up now more than a quarter of its population, devastated the nun who had been working with Iraqi refugees in Jordan for more than 20 years. I was depressed and crying, she said, feeling powerless in the face of all the suffering around me. But my sisters came to my rescue. They gave me a car and a cell phone. With these resources, Sister Warda had the tools she needed to start to make a difference. She began by organizing retreats, offering counseling, guided spiritual direction, and necessities such as food and friends willing to lend a hand. All of these efforts have freed Suad, allowing her to focus now on her family as well as herself. Making a difference is what the followers of Jesus have been doing in the, in the Middle East for millennia, both in times of prosperity and in times of war. Within weeks of their exile, the prioress of the Dominican sisters, Sister Maria Hanna, realized that displaced children needed special help. Children in the displaced families are the real victims, she said. They are really crushed by the situation. Entire families had to suddenly all live together in one room or tent, and the children were not allowed to speak, to express fear or frustration. They couldn't play. They couldn't shout. Often, they had to bear witness to domestic problems caused by the displacement. Responding to this need, her community established a kindergarten and an orphanage in Erbil, substituting them for the institutions they once ran back home. These efforts have eased the burden on families, especially the children themselves, starving to learn and play. One of the boys was so excited, she said, he was so excited to be going to kindergarten that the night before his first day back, he slept with his backpack on. He did not want anything to come between between him and his learning. Hearing she would be going back to kindergarten, uh, Sister Marie was telling me, one young girl picked up her family statue of the Blessed Virgin Mary and danced around, thanking the Blessed Mother again and again. Now, our friends Safwan and Dalia, who I mentioned earlier, they left with everything that they had, and they, retur- they went to Amman, where Dalia safely delivered a baby girl in the Italian hospital. We named her Mariana, Safwan said, because the Virgin has saved us. The birth of Mariana has changed our attitude. We know now that God has chosen a different path for her and thus for us. We aren't sure yet what God's plan is for our family, but it can only get better from here, and we will follow his will. 
Perhaps the critical mass of the Christian faith community that gave us the origins of Arab nationalism, modern Arab scholarship, pan-Arab sentiments, and Palestinian liberation theology will evaporate. But hopefully the seeds of hope and social justice sowed by generation of Middle East Christian priests and counselors, doctors and nurses, midwives and sisters will germinate and take root. Hopefully these well-watered roots will sprout shoots leading to the growth of what Pope Benedict called positive secularism and thriving Middle East societies, quote, concern for the fundamental rights of the human person, whatever his or her origins, religious convictions, or political preferences, end quote. All is not despair for Christians in the Middle East. Despite the deluge of violence, Middle East Christians, through their emergency relief efforts, their social service initiatives, schools and hospitals that aid all those in need, even now these Middle East Christians are restoring self-respect and trust. They bring joy to persons robbed of these basic human values by the destructive ideologies plaguing the region. They continue this because of their bond with Christ. Earlier this week, the president of Catholic Near East, Monsignor John E. Kozar, can celebrated mass in a tent with more than 300 Iraqi displaced Christians. The tent was packed and full of joy, he said, and their singing and devotion gave me a boost in appreciating how important the Eucharist is with people of a deep faith. Thank you very much. We have about uh, seven minutes for possible questions, uh, and then we'll have a little break before uh, Cardinal Dolan arrives. Um, I'm saying seven minutes. Am I being nodded to? Yes, seven minutes. <laughs> so I only obey instructions. Yes. Would you mind standing just so everybody could hear? Can you speak into it? Okay, sorry. Uh, Hajime al-Husseini was a lieutenant in the Ottoman uh, brigades that were involved in the massacre uh, for the week of April 15th to 24, where half a million Armenians were killed. And I believe that that inspired him to work with theology of the Muslim Brotherhood to then talk about the Dimitude, but shifted over to the Nazi philosophy with the Jews first. And as late as 1933, there was an Assyrian Christian massacre in Iraq. And then in 1934, it was shifted over to uh, the first anti-Jewish laws, which were very similar to the Nuremberg laws in, um, in the Nazi realm. So in 34, 35, and 36, there were anti-Jewish laws passed on quotas in schools, travel out of Iraq, and finally that you had to have Muslim partners and then in 39, a school system. So I think it's important to connect the Armenian massacre and what happened there to the ethnic cleansing of another minority and then to bring it up to the present time with what's happening now because there's not a, really a gap that goes on. It's that same philosophy through there. Perhaps so I want to thank you thank and uh, just get your comments on that. 
th thank you. So I would just say briefly that, that I agree with what you say, and I would, I would only add that recently historians have begun to interrogate the German complicity in what happened to Armenians as well, because as I'm sure you know, the Germans were building a railroad through that part of Turkey, uh, and there is uh, more and more evidence that the Germans were actually involved in a kind of supporting way, uh, using a lot of the Armenians as labor battalions on the railways. In fact, Father uh, Grigoritz Balaki, and I mentioned his memoirs before, was actually saved because he worked on the railroad for the, for the, the Baghdad railway being built by the Germans. So there is, you're, you're quite right, madam, there is some uh, connection there. And the Kaiser, of course, one thing was allied with the Ottomans during the Great right. War, as opposed to the Brits and the, and the uh, Russians who were uh, allies against, allied against. May I ask yes. you yes. to Could I make one comment to that? So I have, just to follow on this, I have a friend who is a Christian from Iraq who told me who his family was there in the 40s when this happened and said that um, the departing Jews said to the Christians, just remember that Saturday comes before Sunday. Sorry. Do we have any question over there? Yes. Gentleman there. Have any of the Western governments, if you didn't hear, directly addressed the, these issues that are being talked about? If may I answer the question, it's quite inconsistent, the answer of the West. And if you hear the prelates, the bishops, and other hierarchies in the Middle East, they will say even they would go without naming the person. Uh, two weeks ago, he was with me uh, from Syria. He said, the French, the protectors of Christianity, they betrayed us. They abandoned us. Where is the West? So the answer is not strong. There are a lot of words, but the answer is not strong. One more question. Yes, sir. I'm glad you both brought up the subject uh, of the, uh, the other the Christians and the others in the Middle East. If I could make a remark for, uh, for Mark's remarks about the Armenians in the 1890. And for the audience, it's very important also to know that uh, the Ottoman Empire um, was not the only genocide or the only war against Christians in, uh, in the Ottoman Empire. In the early 19, uh, in the early 1800s, uh, Christians in Lebanon they were faced to join the Ottoman Empire or or expelled from the, from from Lebanon and the so-called the Mount of Lebanon uh, area. And then in the 1860, actually, was a uh, was a, a huge genocide of Christians in Lebanon, and then comes the 1900 genocide of the Armenians and the Assyrians. I think around 1930s, uh, also. So the um, every so often, every 20 years or so, we notice that there is um, a huge um, a war on Christians in the Middle East. Uh, it took a small, uh, a quiet time in the, uh, I think after World War II because of the changes of the uh, dynamics in the area. But then if you notice, and until the uh, early 1970s, until now, 
when um, the so-called civil war in Lebanon started, and then they tried to, um, to tell the Christians in Lebanon, it's time for you to leave. Uh, they took the stand. Uh, it was uh, questioned a lot about different uh, groups in the Middle East. Should the Christians in Lebanon fight or stay? And then we noticed, I think, 40 years later, then we should be a stronger hand, all of us, so we could, you could, you know, we could make it. I know Does I, anyone, I have more uh, time. wish to address that? Okay. Uh, we look like we're almost, we're going to have a little break now before, uh, we're not having a break. We've, oh, a few more questions. Okay. One more question. Lady there. I believe uh, Nina might have a word about that later on. Perhaps there is a something brewing, but also uh, any of the uh, of the panel. I, I will just say, I, I, I mean, I'm sympathetic with that. I am skeptical, actually, that this is going to be a major issue because uh, I, I think that. So, um, I just think that Mideast Christians just do not have great PR. And the, the quote I, keeps coming back to me is, I forget who said this. Mideast Christians, they are too Christian for the left and too foreign for the right. And so there's really not a constituency that cares, sadly, that cares, that cares enough about this, I think. We can try. We can try. Um, you know, I will just say, for example, Barack, you know. I hope you're right. Uh, exactly. As long as it, I mean, how do, you, how do you not make something partisan in an election season? And then unfortunately in our culture today, even in the church, everything is partisan. The, I think the one thing we have to remember is these people are Christians in the Middle East and other minorities and the people there in general, the, the simple person on the street. They are victims of extreme partisan ideologies and intolerance. So we have to be careful not to make them become objects of, of partisan bickering back here for electoral votes uh, because there are lives at stake and there are lots of them that are still in limbo. They're not getting, unfortunately, the visas we would like to. Some of us would like to be able to bring them here. The bishops don't want them to leave. There's this tug of war. So it's, a, it's everything with, with that part of the world is just a delicate tightrope and we have to be careful that we don't use them to further our own, our own, uh, our own ideologies, I suppose. And could I just add one more thing? I, and, and I was going to say, also, one has to be careful what one advocates for, because oftentimes uh, agitation on behalf of these minorities only makes their life worse. Um, you know, when Pope Francis mentioned the Armenian genocide at the Mass in April, the Turkish government withdrew its ambassador in protest. When Pope Benedict mentioned the mistreatment of Copts a few years ago in Egypt, the Egyptian government withdrew its ambassador in protest. And oftentimes the people who most suffer are the Christians there. So one has to be careful exactly what one does. But I mean, I, I'm sympathetic. I hope so. Do we, have, do we have time for one more? May, may, I, yeah, may I add one? Recently, I had to accompany uh, 
couple prelates and visited uh, congressional people without naming them. And just to your point, there is a lack of education of the issue. They need to know. They need to know the facts. Let them decide. But they, there is a lack of true education of the situation, and, and, and that's a responsibility for all of us to bring it uh, to, to, the, to the domain of the, uh, of the elected officials. So, yes, I would agree that they need to be involved very seriously. I'm afraid we have to cut it off now. Sorry, those people who have their hands up. Just my uh, concluding, as I'm at the podium, you can't get me off for this one minute. Uh, just uh, I, I would like to say, for those of us who are believers, it's easy to despair, perhaps, which is a sin against the Holy Spirit, but it's easy to despair, but we should not despair. Remember the words of the Lord. If you give a cup of water to someone because they're a Christian, your name will be remembered. So... Maybe we only give a cup of water. We feel we can't do much. We're doing something even today talking about it. We're giving a cup of water in some way. So some people are giving gallons. Some people are giving cups. But we're doing something, and the Lord will remember it. But we must do more. Thank you to our speakers, and we're going to prepare for the cardinal now. <laughs>